Hello, and welcome to the latest ClearBridge podcast. This is Jeff Schulze, CFA Investment Strategist at ClearBridge Investments. ClearBridge is a global equity manager with $151 billion in assets under management committed to delivering long-term results through authentic active management. We integrate ESG considerations into our fundamental research process across all strategies. Climate change and the need to decarbonize the economy continue to drive public policy around the world. With the U.S. Inflation Reduction Act in 2022, and now the Net Zero Industry Act in Europe, the latest to lay foundations for industrial policy that would support a green economy. Decarbonization forms an important part of ClearBridge's fundamental research as we assess how portfolio companies are preparing to thrive in a decarbonizing world. There is growing pressure for companies from shareholders like ClearBridge, from the public and regulators, and also some competitive opportunity for those companies leading the way. Here with me today to discuss the role of industry in decarbonizing the economy, and in particular, companies in the industrial sector, are Dimitri Dayan, Senior Analyst for Renewables and Industrial Products and Services, and Hannah Wang, Senior Analyst for the Industrial Sector. We'll drill down to what decarbonization technologies making the headlines really have to offer and how industrial companies are reducing their emissions in today's podcast, Decarbonizing Industry. Hannah, Dimitri, thank you so much for joining me here live at the Midtown studio. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. And obviously, decarbonization is arguably the biggest thing that the global economy needs to tackle over the next couple of decades. So it's going to be a huge undertaking. But before we kind of dive into it, I want to take a 10,000-foot view and ask, really, what is decarbonization? What needs to be done? Does everybody need to drive a Tesla or use solar power? Dimitri, what are your thoughts? Yeah, thanks, Jeff. Um, Let's just take a step back. Decarbonization, as you mentioned, is is a giant topic, and it's really affecting all aspects of society, of industry, of the economy, if we are going to move towards this net zero world by 2050. EVs get a lot of attention. People like to talk about them. We like to see them on the street. But really, when you drill down at it, passenger car travel is only about 7% of global carbon emissions. It's not a large number. Power, generating power, electricity, it's really the single biggest source of emissions in the world today. That's about 25%. Transportation taking as as a whole in totality, around 14%. Within that, air travel, which I'm sure we'll talk a lot about today, that accounts for just under 2%. Even with everybody buying their vacations and, uh, you know, getting that revenge spending? <laughs> Maybe 1.9 this year. But it, the industrial emissions are very important as well. If you include waste, steel, chemicals, everything that we would think of as the industrial economy, we're talking about about 20, 21% of global emissions. So it is a very large number that we need to be talking about and thinking about. But how do we tackle all this? I mean, if we are going to be looking from the economic standpoint and we think about the Paris Agreement, limiting warming to about one and a half degrees by 2050, I mean, there are scenarios that say something like $100 trillion would need to be invested in order to achieve that goal. Hold on. $100 trillion? $100 trillion. So the U.S. economy is about $25 trillion, so about four times the size of the U.S. economy. That is a massive, massive number. And 30 years to do that. Wow. Now, we can debate what the actual number will be, how society will have to pivot. Do we get to 2050, 2060? You know, is it 100 trillion? Is it 50? It's a very, very large number, no matter how you slice it or dice it, if we're going to go down this path, which the world is going down that path. And for us as investors, this is incredibly exciting because we're talking about very large numbers, huge amount of investment in economies, products, and services all over the world. And there's going to be a lot of value creation to be had in the market for folks that are looking out for these type of opportunities. Yes, I would say that's a long tail of opportunity if I've ever heard one. 
Now, I want to dive into one aspect of what you mentioned there, Dimitri, which is the 14% covered by transport. And obviously, that's an area of your coverage, Hannah, in the industrial sector. Are you hearing a lot from the transport companies that they're trying to decarbonize? Yeah. So across transportation, everyone's talking about different ways to get to net zero. The one area where I've actually seen a real pickup in terms of ESG commitments and conversations is in aviation. At the end of 2021, the airline industry committed to achieve net zero carbon emissions by 2050 to align with the Paris Agreement. So this is new for aviation. And as Dimitri mentioned, while aviation is only 2% of carbon emissions, it is a pretty fast-growing mode of transportation. So this is important over the longer term. To get to the 2050 goal, this is roughly comprised of 65% through sustainable aviation fuel, 13% new technology, which includes hydrogen propulsion technology, 19% offsets in carbon capture, and 3% in operational efficiencies. And this is outlined by IATA. The interim goals to get there, you know, you can't just go from zero to 100 overnight. So 2025, the goal is for SAF production to reach 2 billion gallons. SAF was the sustainable aviation fuel. Correct. Sustainable aviation fuel. So 2 billion gallons would equate to about 2% of total fuel required. So small amounts. Wow. And that's in three years. Yeah, it's uh, and Dimitri will go into, you know, some of the challenges of scaling this. And then 2030 production is supposed to reach hopefully 6 billion gallons. That would be about 5% of fuel required. 2035, hopefully SAF can get to 24 billion. That would be about 17% of fuel required. And the hope is that electric and or hydrogen aircraft for regional markets will become available. In 2040, the hope is that SAF will reach 60 billion gallons. That would represent roughly 40% of fuel required. And the hope is for hydrogen aircraft for the short haul market. So that's flights under 120 minutes will become available. And so forth. And this goes on until 2050, where hopefully we can get to 118 billion gallons of SAF, which would be 65% of total. So SAF is clearly a huge component of getting to this net zero emission goal in 2050. But in terms of engine technology today, the latest planes can handle up to 50% SAF blends. That's pretty good. So a lot of runway there where you have the technology today to handle it. The challenge, again, is just that SAF is not widely available and it's expensive. So historically, it's been about two to four times more expensive than crude oil. And airlines... Definitely not economical. Yeah, not, not right now. It's probably closer to two, you know, with oil prices kind of coming up in the last couple of years. Um, And airlines are willing to pay some premium, but it does need to get closer to parity, I think, for demand to really scale. Beyond that, engine technology, Boeing, as an example, has made a commitment in 21 that by 2030, all their new commercial planes will be capable of using 100% SAF. Again, that's not the immediate problem, but that is what they are working on. They're also looking into hydrogen and liquid form. So this is the stuff that you use on rockets that have a lot of propulsion power, but hydrogen is also, you know, further off than SAF. So really interesting technologies, transitions that we're talking about here. But I want to maybe take a step back for a second. You mentioned SAF and, and hydrogen, but maybe, Dimitri, can you dive into what exactly those industries are and maybe explain some of the technical challenges that they may be facing? And scaling probably is going to be one of them, I would imagine. Sure, sure. So SAF, that's essentially a lower carbon alternative to jet fuel. Chemically, it's very, very similar. 
it's generally speaking made out of organic content, like used cooking oil, fats, agricultural products. Used cooking oil is the best thing to use. Wow. Is that a big market, used cooking oil? About 2 billion gallons are produced wow. in the United States. So yeah, it, it can be large. But the result is that you get fuel that's overall carbon intensity, something like 50 to 75% of what jet fuel will be. So you do get improvement in emissions. You don't likely get to fully decarbonize, especially given what Hannah said, that the engines are not 100% SAF geared today. Now, SAF is a very new concept. We read a lot about it, but it's actually very little of it in the world today. It's something like under 100 million gallons. So it's only a handful of projects in the drawing board as well. Now, we've seen some really exciting announcements out of Valero, out of Air Products. But if we add up kind of all the projects that are on drawing board and seem to be moving forward, it's like a billion, just over a billion gallons of capacity. And that's to 2025 or 2026, because these projects do take a while to come on stream. So just to give you a sense of putting that in context, if we have a billion gallons or so on the drawing board, we use over 120 billion gallons in global airline industry. So this has got a long ways to go. That equates to roughly seven and a half to 8% of global oil consumption is going to jet fuel today. So clearly scaling up, you know, won't necessarily be an easy undertaking. From the cost standpoint, if you do some back of the envelope math, you need something like $500 billion of new capital to build out facilities for that kind of magnitude of capacity. But the bigger problem is probably actually going to be securing the feedstock, which is arguably a bigger constraint given it's driven by organic content. And organic content just doesn't scale well. You have to grow it. On hydrogen, you know, the potential is very large. I mean, there are some estimates out there that we're talking about as much as 15% of global energy could come from hydrogen by 2050. So this is very, very big. And it's pretty exciting for companies that are in this space and can supply technologies or be in a position to supply hydrogen itself. Having said that, you know, also still early. There are very few sort of green hydrogen projects today that are producing the fuel, but there are definitely some very interesting projects moving forward. The challenge is getting the cost down to make it affordable and make it on parity with conventional fuels like diesel. So that does require a lot of cheap, clean power to make green hydrogen out of water and getting to scale on demand is going to be very, very important. So the process for making green hydrogen is also evolving, and that's part of the excitement that's building. There's a lot of innovation on the electrolyzer side. That's the machine that breaks down water to produce hydrogen. And uh, those machines are increasing in efficiency, the electrolyzer machines. But the biggest potential market for green hydrogen is transportation. So a fleet of uh, hydrogen-driven trucks, buses, trains does need to be built out, and that scale needs to be achieved on that end, and that's a big part of lowering costs. But there are also major industrial customers that are candidates for adoption of green hydrogen, but also blue hydrogen. And that's where we're seeing first-mover projects uh, today. I got to step in here for a second. You threw out another colored hydrogen, blue hydrogen. What exactly is green hydrogen and blue hydrogen? And then how many other hydrogen colors are out there? There's a rainbow of hydrogens <laughs> out there. The most popular will be gray hydrogen, which is conventional hydrogen that's produced today. That's hydrogen made out of natural gas. So that's a carbon fossil fuel product. So not the most efficient or the most efficient from a decarbonization standpoint. Lowest cost, but not the most efficient from a decarbonization standpoint at all. But you can, there are technologies to take carbon out of gray hydrogen and to sequester it. And there are now credits to allow folks to do that. And that was called blue hydrogen. Green hydrogen is hydrogen produced using renewable power to run an electrolyzer to split water that produces no, um, essentially no emissions, uh, carbon emissions to the atmosphere. Okay. A lot more colors than I was anticipating. Hannah, any thoughts on this topic and maybe some of the challenges that are out there? 
Yeah, I agree with Dimitri. Um, feedstock is a huge structural problem, just collecting the stuff you need. But again, it's also production capacity. How do you incentivize producers to to make SAF? And, you know, I think that the airlines setting really visible goals can go a long way to incentivizing this production capacity because they are willing to pay a premium. I understand, you know, there's a, a company, Diamond Green Diesel, it's a joint venture between Valero and Darling Industries, for example. I think they're building out capacity specifically for SAF because they've got an airline or airlines lined up who are promising to take that capacity. So it's just a question of how much premium, right? But again, these net zero commitments are new, so we're in really early innings. But again, I think setting visible goals is going to go a long way to facilitating the conversation. Well, if you know that there's going to be demands for what you're bringing online, obviously that incentivizes some additional capex. Now, one thing that I want to talk about here is, you know, obviously with any new technology or industry, you have kind of have that J curve and you finally get some scale and some adoption. And we've had some stimulus in the U.S. here recently with the U.S. Inflation Reduction Act earlier this year. Um, I know green energy was a part of that initiative. Is there any incentives that you saw for these industries that came out of that announced stimulus earlier this year, Dimitri? Yeah, IRA is very important to getting uh, getting some of these technologies to scale. So if we look at we look at SAF, there's a separate production credit for it of about a dollar twenty five a gallon and upwards of that. I mean, the idea is to support the economics of uh, SAF projects while we get broader adoption to lower cost of the airlines and to make it more attractive for the producer as well. So we're definitely in the early days of that. RINs are also an important part of making... Mm -hmm. What's a RIN? A renewable identification credit. So those are credits that the refiners book for having alternative fuels. But effectively, putting all that together, you're getting to kind of a $6.57 per gallon that's needed to make these projects economic. So scaling to the size of the industry is, you know, certainly a challenge, but we're seeing some interesting SAF projects going forward. Hannah just mentioned Diamond Green Diesel, which is a JV from between Valero and Darling. They have an interesting project. Air Products recently announced an interesting project with World Energy in Los Angeles. So both of these companies adding these projects does move the needle from the cash flow and earnings standpoint, earnings forecast standpoint. So investors have been welcoming and, being, and welcoming those projects that were excited about them. Green hydrogen tax credit is also very important. The IRA provides for $3 per kilogram, and that can cut the cost of making green hydrogen somewhere in half. Oh, that's massive. Yeah, and some people have said it's more than half. So it's a very powerful incentive for the first movers. However, the cost is still very high once you start factoring in distribution and transportation of the product. So scale is, again, key. You need the end markets to develop. When you see large users of green hydrogen coming into the system, and preferably in the transportation system, because that's where you get a lot of usage. But here again, I would highlight the industrial gas companies like Lindy and Air Products. They're developing green hydrogen projects, but also blue hydrogen projects, as we highlighted. And I also would want to highlight here Bloom Energy, and that's the company that has very interesting electrolyzer technologies. And we said a few minutes ago that this area is very much evolving. And so making more efficient electrolyzers does go a very long way towards reducing the energy usage required. And that lends itself to both scalability and lower costs. Yeah, so it seems like there's a lot of companies out there that are very well positioned for the emergence of these technologies. Now, obviously, it seems like it's going to be a long ramp up period, you know, a lot of hurdles that we need to get over. But Hannah, what is the low hanging fruit here, right? How can we shorten the gap or close that gap as things are coming to scale and this really gets built out in a more meaningful way? 
Yeah, a um, couple areas. Uh, one, aviation. So I think the number one thing, the easiest get, would be modernizing existing fleets. The latest generation of aircraft are 15 and 20% more fuel efficient. So it can be capital intensive to replace your fleet, but airlines are doing this. Then I think it's also about working with regulators to incentivize or staff production. So Boeing, they just rolled out a digital model called Cascade um, that they've been working on with MIT. This uses a lot of data from the IEA, and basically you can make a lot of assumptions about variables to see how they impact carbon emissions over time. So variables like how fast will aviation grow, how much volume of hydrogen will become available, maybe it's clean or if it's dirty, assumptions around SAF availability. And so they're using this uh, with governments as an educational tool and to help them figure out which policies will generate the highest return. So hopefully this will help facilitate conversations and uh, the right policies. Within trucking and rail, One of the challenges within trucking is the Class 8 truck that's really heavy. So people talk about hydrogen because it's more powerful, but again, the technology is a ways off. So it's more of a concept at this point. But the easiest get right now is to convert cargo from a Class 8 truck to rail since railroads are four times more fuel efficient. I'm hearing some of my rail companies say that the conversations with customers to convert volumes from truck is getting easier as customers focus more on sustainability. The challenge right now, and well, historically, has been that the quality of service among rails is not great. Uh, They're a lot less reliable than truck, but if they can improve that and they are working on it, uh, I think we'll see more conversion to rail. For lighter vehicles, so say, for example, UPS Class A truck, we're seeing more use of alternative fuels. UPS, as an example, has made a commitment that by 2025, 40% of the fuel consumed in their ground vehicles will be alternative fuel. That's impressive. That's only two years. Yeah, they uh, have been making a lot of progress. So that's one of their easier commitments. Really, the harder commitment, though, for them, along with the aviation industry, will be their massive air fleet for all the reasons we talked about. So this is a little bit out of their control, but they are focused on it since they've also committed to net zero by 2050. All right. Well, look, I think we have time for one more question. We're coming up here in 20 minutes. And I I want to maybe approach this from a different angle and move over to you, Dimitri. Industrial software, right? Obviously, it enables carbon reduction across a lot of verticals, whether it's mobility, industrial production efficiencies, energy savings. How are these companies really helping decarbonize industry? Well, it's interesting. It's said that something like 80% of a product's environmental impact is determined by decisions made in the design phase of that product. So hence, when you think about computer-aided design or CAD companies like Autodesk, PTC, Dassault, they have a really important role to play in this. And they have tools that enable emission optimization in products and infrastructure in buildings when it comes to Autodesk, they're able to offer into the market and charge a premium for, and we've seen demand and uptake for some of those products. On the electric vehicle front, it's been very impactful here in recent years that the OEMs building out a fleet, a lineup of electric cars alongside with their traditional ICE vehicles has led to a lot of hiring of engineers, and a lot of purchases of design packages for this type of software. And this has been a very important factor in seeing how well the CAD companies have grown, both their revenues and their ARRs in 2022, in 2021, despite sort of the economic backdrop that's been more challenging. It's been really exciting to see. I would also mention Aspen Tech and Bentley Systems. 
So Aspen is in the process optimization software industry, and Bentley is in the infrastructure design software business. But both of these companies have businesses that are levered to the build out of the electric grid and to increase complexity of that grid as more renewables are added onto it. So as we invest in decarbonization, grid investments are going to be very, very important and, and utility scale investments are going to be very, very important. And that has been contributing to the growth of these businesses. And to the extent that these investments continue, we can feel good about looking forward to continued double digit growth for these companies. Great. Great. Well, look, I'm going to have to stop here. I feel like we can go on forever, uh, but unfortunately, we're at 25 minutes. But I, I will say that this has been a fascinating conversation. And maybe from my vantage point, the key takeaway for me is that although decarbonization is in its infancy, there's going to be a lot of exciting opportunities over the next 30 years as these technologies come online. And obviously, it's going to create an edge for active managers that know this space, that have that critical insight as we go through this $100 trillion dollar transition. Again, I can't get over that number. It's such a large number. Sure, Jim. But Dimitri, Hannah, I want to thank you both for joining me in the booth today and sharing your valuable insights on the technologies that are in the forefront of this decarbonization process. So thank you for coming. Thank you. Hopefully we'll have more interesting conversations to come on this topic. I think we will. And thank you, everybody, for listening and for taking the time to join the podcast. We hope you'll continue to join us for future episodes in 2023. And we welcome any comments, questions, and suggestions, which you can email us at podcast at clearbridge.com. Take care. Please note the following. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. The opinions and views expressed in today's podcast are of the individual speakers as of February 13th, 2023, and may differ from other managers or the firm as a whole and are not intended to be a forecast of future events, a guarantee of future results, or investment advice. Any statistics reference have been attained from sources believed to be reliable, but the accuracy and completeness of this information cannot be guaranteed. Neither ClearBridge Investments nor its information providers are responsible for any damages or losses arising from any use of this information.